Okay, this evening is May 7th. It's Wednesday evening, years 2008. This evening we're going to talk about abiding in Christ, to abide in Christ. Matt played that song, and so I'm hooked. Uh, please turn with me to Isaiah, be in the fifth chapter. When I said please turn, I hope y'all are actually doing that. There you go. Brothers fast. Isaiah, the fifth chapter. I'm going to read to you a couple of scriptures out of Isaiah, followed by one in Jeremiah. A more modern English translation of the word abide is to remain, to remain in something. And when it's used in the Bible, abide or remain comes from Greek or Hebrew, depending on where you're reading. And both of them have to do with the idea of enduring in something, continuing in something. Another way to translate it might be to dwell in it or live in it. Now, when we talk about living or dwelling, we tend to think of setting up residence. Well, it's hard to to set up residence quite work, so we translated it as remain or abide. But the truth is that it has to do with more than just showing up for class. It's talking about a 100% buy-in into something, a 100% investment in something. Have you ever attended or done something that your heart was not nearly 100% in? I one time had to go to a swim lesson because my parents had paid for it. And I was just old enough to realize that maybe boys shouldn't wear swimsuits that look like this, but not old enough to look very good in a swimsuit that looked like that. And I did not want to go. My heart wasn't in it. And so everything that the instructor told me, everything I, I tanked on purpose because I didn't want to be there. It was awkward. It was not something that I wanted to do. It was just something to fill a summer because I had parents that worked. Does that make sense? That's not abiding in that swim class, even if I was there 100% of the time. So when we talk about abide or remain in or dwell in, what we're talking about is to continue in something with fervor, blazing. You following me so far? Okay, so you in Isaiah 5? And we're going to change gears. I promise this will tie in. But God, when He's speaking of His people, uses tender, loving terminology. And in Isaiah 5, starting in the first verse, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it, 
The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Israel and Judah, collectively, we're going to call them Israel, but they became northern and southern kingdoms. The northern referred to as Israel, and the southern referred to as Judah. God referred to as his vineyard. Have you ever met a guy that had a little pet project going on in his house somewhere? Like when I met Charlotte's dad, within 15 minutes of meeting Charlotte's dad, I got to go see what the equivalent of his vineyard is. It was a car he was working on. And you can tell a certain little gleam gets in his eyes. And I've seen it before. People have different hobbies. You can tell when they are in love with something. And they can't have, they're looking for a chance in conversation when they meet somebody to show them what they're doing because they enjoy it. I knew a man named Bob Paroli that, that reminded me of so much because when I went to his house, the same scenario. They even got the same haircut. Sometimes you'll meet people and their hobbies change. Their interests change. But you can see a certain gleam in a man's eye when he's going to show you something that he's worked hard on and he's proud of. That's the sense in which God speaks about Israel as his vineyard. Like a guy who started with little bitty seeds and he worked hard and cultivated out of the hard earth a plant that was now growing. And he put a hedge around it because he wanted to protect it from anything that might hurt it. And he built a watchtower to make sure that he could see it at all times so nothing would touch what was precious to him. And after the appropriate amount of time and all of the work and all that he had hoped for, he shows up and it did not produce what he wanted. One of the only times I've ever seen Fred upset and it was mildly upset. On Eric's scale, it wouldn't even measure. Uh, Fred is a stoic man that controls his emotions well. I've never been that way. He wanted this particular desk at Sam's that had a roll-down cage on it. It was the coolest-looking thing I had seen. And when we began to build it, after going through all of the instructions perfectly, we got down to the last couple pieces, and guess what? They weren't in the box. How disappointing is it when you invest your time into something... When you're proud, you've been excited about it, you're looking for it, you rebuilt the whole engine, and you go to turn over the key, and it won't start. You can imagine that kind of disgust, huh? Not good. Mandy worked on this thing. She crocheted or needle-pointed or whatever y'all do. She worked with big needles and little yarn and produced a blanket. But every so often, she'd realize something and it wasn't right and would have to backtrack sometimes months' worth of work to get it right. That is a sickening, gut-wrenching feeling, isn't it? Turns me then to Isaiah uh, 27. God's pet project, His delight, was a vineyard. Why do people plant vineyards? They want to grow something in it, don't they? Anybody ever planted a vineyard just to plant a vineyard? Steve and Darnell showed me a garden they have. And they were proud because Steve and I had consulted on the design of the garden. We had talked about the way to overlay lawn timbers, the size nails to drive through them, all those things. And Steve did well. He built a nice garden. And when we went out there, what I saw looked like a science project, little twigs sticking out of the dirt everywhere. But Steve pointed and said, that will be fine. Or that will be basil. Or that will be a cucumber. And I thought, you know, that's kind of cool because what it looked like to me is 
something the police would confiscate from you. I didn't see anything in that that looked edible or good to me. But because it's their pet project and they're excited about it and they've been cleaning up their backyard and doing beautiful things in it, this is something he couldn't wait to show me. That's the sense in which God begins to speak about Israel. And in the 27th chapter of Isaiah, in the second verse, says, In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Twice now, in the book of Isaiah, we've seen that God refers to His people as His vineyard, that He waters continually, that He protects. But you plant a vineyard for only one reason. You want something from it. Turn to Jeremiah with me. It will be the 12th chapter of Jeremiah. In the 12th chapter, in 7th verse, I will forsake my house and abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. Therefore, I hate her. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Twice now in reading the Scriptures, you've seen that God has plans for His vineyard. Beautiful plans. He wants to water it. He wants to put a hedge of protection around it. He wants to show it great affection. And twice now, He's talked about utterly destroying it. When does the project that a man loves and works on daily and can't wait to show his friends become something that he abhors? When it does not work right and cannot be repaired, no matter what you do, then what do you see in it? Wasted effort. You see something that you poured time and affection and love into, and it didn't yield anything that it was supposed to. Israel was a vineyard. Turn with me then to John 15. Our topic again is to abide or remain. Y'all refresh my memory. In Isaiah and in Jeremiah, who was the vine? Israel. Israel is a word that means prince or ruler with God. So God had a nation that He called the vine, but He also called them a prince or a ruler with Him. And He tended them, and He put a hedge around them, and He watered them continually, and He protected them and put His hand on them. 
But he also promised that they would be laid waste on two occasions. Once he said it in Isaiah and once he said it in Jeremiah. As we think about that, let me remind you of the context. Isaiah is written 740 years before Jesus. During a time period right before God's precious vineyard is about to go into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. And his vineyard was trampled down. Then when we read the book of Jeremiah, this is in somewhere around 86, 586 B.C. God's precious vineyard is about to go for 70 years in captivity under the Babylonian kings. What God intended to be good and what God poured Himself into, over and over and over, He allowed other nations to run over and trample down and beat into something that did not resemble a vine at all. Now here we are standing in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. And Jesus makes a profound statement. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. When Jesus says, I am the vine, you need to understand that all of Israel saw themselves as the vine. And what is Israel? The prince with God. Now there is a man standing before them claiming that he is the embodiment of the prince with God. God's pet project. What God had poured into day and night. What God had put a hedge around so that nobody would trample it down. What He put a watchtower over to make sure that His eye was always on it. Is Jesus the head of this nation? I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes or cleans so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Did you see that the fifth verse identifies Jesus as the vine? And who are the branches? Who did the fifth verse say are the branches? The fifth verse says that we are the branches. God, just like everybody else who ever had a special interest, has a special interest in Jesus. And all those who are connected to and identified with Him. And He builds hedges around us and puts watchtowers over us and waters us day and night that we might do something. What do you want from your vineyard? You want fruit. God wants what He pours into us to begin to stretch out and bear fruit on the outside of us. And there is only one way to do it. Israel went into captivity under Assyria because they did not remain, continue with fervor in the Father. Israel went into captivity in Babylon because they did not remain continually dwelling in with fervor the Father. Now Jesus is issuing a warning in His last 24 hours on earth. You must remain in Me if you want to bear fruit. What did God say would happen if you didn't do those things? The wall would be torn down. The watchtower would be crushed. The field would be trampled on. 
Jesus takes that penalty in the last 24 hours of His life upon Himself. The thing that God cared most about on the planet, the thing that is the very apple of His eye, the incarnate Son, would be trampled on by the nations of men, be torn to pieces and His walls broken down so that you actually hear Him quote Psalm 69 and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the thing that God had loved the most suddenly felt separation from Him. That's a penalty that was meant for us. That's a penalty that was supposed to fall on us. There was never a time in which Jesus broke away from the Father. But in our daily lives, we do it whenever our will is different than the Father's. We put Him on hold so that we can take up our own interest. We push our knowledge of Him to the back of our minds so that we can do what we want to do when we want to do it. I want to read you this again. I had been taught all of my life that the branches are simply unfruitful areas of your life. This is not true. It's not true by a long shot. The fifth verse identifies who the branches are and who are they? Us. If you are a branch in Christ, He will clean you, prune you. If you bear no fruit, He will cut you off even as He did the nation twice. 15th verse, or 15th chapter, verse 1. I am the true vine, my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Sounds like the gardener has his mind on fruit, doesn't it? You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What makes your life fruitful? If pruning makes a branch fruitful, what makes your life fruitful according to the third verse? The word that He speaks to us. This is when we're in a situation and God's word directs us so that we bear more fruit. How to handle a specific situation. How to react to words spoken to you. Verse 4 start something. In these first ten verses of the 15th chapter of John, you want to guess how many times Jesus says the word remain? Young, speak to me. It's Wednesday. Eleven times in ten verses, Jesus is going to look at people that have pledged their support to Him and say, remain in me. Remembering that remain means to live in with fervor to abide in, to endure in. Why do you think that 11 times in 10 verses, Jesus would have to tell His own followers, continue in me with fervor? Because there is a strong temptation not to. We would like to be full-time Christians on trophy day and part-time Christians on persecution day. We would like to be able to selectively Choose when He's our Lord. Jesus says 11 times in these 10 verses that that's not possible. And He gives a horrible, horrible warning here. Y'all can count them out for me, okay? Keith, will you count them out loud when I say them? Sure. Being cleaned... I'll read it to you again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. What branch gets cut off? The one that has no fruit. Now listen. 
While every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans, prunes, seeks more of his word to, continues to instruct and encourage because it is producing what it's supposed to produce. So that it will become even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. All right, y'all ready? Remain in me, one, and I will remain in you, two. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, three. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me, four. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, five, and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me, You can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, six, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Why do you think the devil has worked so hard to obscure the meaning of these first five or six verses? Because it is a horrendous warning. Say, are you saying that we're saved by works? Absolutely not. I'm saying that works are the proof of your salvation. If you remain in Him, you cannot help but have fruit. If you separate yourself from Him, you cannot have godly fruit. It won't happen. If you are struggling in Him and fighting and trying and failing most of the time like me, but remaining in Him, He will continue to prune you so that you become more fruitful. But make no mistake, saints. When we refuse to live in Him with fervor, to dwell in Him continually, to make our abode with Him, He throws you right into the fire. Boy, that's not preached very often, is it? And yet, that's not the motivation for being obedient to Him. It's not to get out of the fire. What does it mean to bear fruit for God? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Happiness in the Holy Ghost. Does that sound like a bad life to you? Why is it then that we run from living in Him with fervor? What are the works of the flesh? Selfish ambition, bitterness, envy, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and the like. All of those things. That doesn't sound like a very desirable lifestyle, is it? Jesus sat and looked at Jerusalem and weeped. and said if she had only known... What would bring her comfort? Remember, this is like when you go to your grandfather's house and he has been working because he has time all week long on some project and he can't wait to show you. That is what our lives are supposed to be like to God. He delights in giving us the kingdom. So all week long, he's looking into Darnell's life, studying her speaking to her, saying, yes, baby, you can be more fruitful in this area. I can help you. Let me flow through you. Watch this. These will be my words that come through your mouth so that the fruit that comes from her life, he can stand back and say, look, look what I did in her. I abide in her and she abides in me. Look at this. And it's with the same kind of joy that Bob Paroli showed me a car he made from three other cars for his daughter. It's the most recognizable thing I'd ever seen in my life. You talk about conspicuous. It was bright yellow. It was made of a pickup truck, a Bronco, and a car. And the two people that were happiest about it on the whole planet were the daddy that made it and the girl that received it. And all over town it spoke one loud message. 
That daddy loves this girl. It took him three cars to cut up to make one, but he did it for her. It was the neatest thing I'd ever seen. God Himself takes special interest in what is happening in our lives. And all He needs for us to do, He provides the water. He provides the hedge. He provides the watchtower, the soil, and the seed. You know what your job is? To stay put in the garden, fervently living in Him. With all of your heart, 100% of buy-in in Him, and then there's nothing that He can't do with us. Nothing. And He delights in us. He's looking for the chance to do something with us. What were we on? Six? Six remains? If you, verse seven, if you remain in me, seven, and my words remain in you, eight, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Have you ever heard this verse misappropriated? Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It presupposes that you have remained in Him. He's remained in you. His Word is dwelling in you and you're dwelling in His Word with fervent adoration. A hundred percent buy-in. Can you be living in God's Spirit? Having His Spirit living in you? A hundred percent buy-in into His Word and ask for stupid, selfish things? Probably not. Probably not. That's pruning time. Oh, baby, you don't know what you're asking for. If I gave you this, it would end up hurting you. Let me clean that out of your life. I'll give you something better. That's what the Father says. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Why is it to the Father's glory? Because He's the one that planted the vineyard. He's the one that brought the true vine and stuck you into it. He's the one that can stand back before all the powers in the heavenlies and say, I and no other did that. What occurred in Mandy's life was no accident. It wasn't the strength of her arm. It wasn't the working of some pagan God. God Almighty did it and no other. And if you don't think God does that, read the second chapter of Ephesians. It says that God's manifold wisdom is being displayed before all of the heavenly powers in us. You know what that means? It means he's just like your grandpa who can't wait to show you what he's been working on in his garage, that he's proudest of everything that he has. You ever met somebody who had a ridiculous bowling trophy or something? And they put it out there for everybody to see? Or a deer head that no matter how many people said, please throw that thing away, you wouldn't get rid of it? That's the esteem in which God holds us. And all we have to do to be bright and shining and gleaming for all the world to see the Father's glory in us is stay a thousand percent plugged into Him. But there's so many things fighting for our attention. Every time you turn on the Internet, you have the potential to sin. Every time you turn on the television, you have the potential to sin. You turn on the radio, there's the potential to sin. You drive down any interstate in Houston, and there's the potential to sin. And you know what it's all screaming? Don't remain in Him. You can go back whenever you want. The road's paved with greasy grace. Sloppy agape. You can slide in and out. He's merciful. Do what you want. Then get serious about Him. That's what the devil's telling the church all of the time. And you know what? They listen. I listen. You have to say no. We will remain in the Father. His will only. His will 100% of the time. You ever see a car that says Las Vegas or bust? Right? Some idea that says, 
I'm going there. Nothing will stop me even if it destroys me to get there. Remember, Jesus remained in the Father 100% of the time and He already took your beating. He already did it. So what is it after we've come to a knowledge of Him, fallen in love with Him and pledged our allegiance to Him if we act like a prostitute and run after other lovers? What does it do? It's a little bit like subjecting Him to public disgrace, beating Him a second time, isn't it? See, the cost is high. But the devil's right there in our mind saying, no, 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 this is really an easy thing. Listen to the six-foot icicle. He told you. You're good to go. Show up. Pay your tithes. That's all you really got to do. And if you can't show up all the time, just send your tithes. Christmas and Easter is good enough. I'll send you the envelopes to your house. Because I can't trust you to get to church and put money in the plate, which is all they really want. Shepherds that feed only themselves. When Jesus says He's the true vine, it has followed a chapter in which He's also identified Himself as the good shepherd. The one that stands up to the others that feed only themselves. The one who gives the sheep what they really need. Now He's standing up saying, I am that plan of salvation that God had for you. It's me. I'll take your beating. And if you will stay plugged into me, you'll be the delight of the Father, even as I am the delight of the Father. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? You know, I don't care about gardens. I don't at all. I can't grow grass at my house. But I like to eat what you grew in your gardens. I don't really like to fish. But if you catch it, I'll eat it. This is a little bit like that. Jesus has done all the hard work Now, all we have to do is submit to His correction, His inspection, and His encouragement on a daily basis with fervor. It's hard to even say that with fervor on a Wednesday night because the whole week has worked to steal your fervor. You fight just to stay awake in church. I understand. I know exactly what that's like. It's hard to have fervor for anything at times in our life. And yet it is commanded, not just because of the penalty, but because of the reward. Let me read you the next couple verses just so we can get to all 11. What number were we on for remain? Eight. Verse eight. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain, nine, in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, ten, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. That's eleven. How do you bear fruit? You remain in God. How do you remain in Him? With 100% buy-in, all of your spiritual fervor directed towards Him all of the time. That's how Paul the Apostle can write a scripture that says, pray without ceasing. Because it was expected that you be in communication with your king 100% of the time, not when it was expedient. I don't want to go too far into this subject, but how many of you would put up with a spouse that only wanted you to be seen with them in certain situations? You probably wouldn't, huh? 
And yet we expect God to call us His radiant, pure, spotless bride. And we only want to be seen with Him when we're around the other members of His bride. It doesn't work that way, saints. You're either in covenant and married to Him. Go to bed with Him at night. Wake up with Him in the morning. Think about Him and call and text each other all day. Just like any two people in love. Or you're not remaining in Him and you need to get right. Turn with me to Chronicles. Can you all stand about ten more minutes of hellfire and brimstone? I'll tell you where in Chronicles when I find it. Well, not in first, it's in second Chronicles. Look at the tenth verse. Tenth chapter. Now, I'm obviously not going to be able to read you the next four or five chapters of Second Chronicles, the tenth chapter. But what I can do is talk to you about the chapter headings and what happens and then make an illustration from a man's life. Hey, if you feel like I'm preaching to you tonight, it's probably because you need to hear what I have to say. You know who else needed to hear it? Eric. Because when I looked into the mirror of his word, this is what I saw staring back at me. I love him. I love him with all of my heart, and yet my heart is fickle. I can occupy my time with anything but what I should be occupying my time. Somewhere in you has to rise his voice that says, I'm going to remain in him at all costs. The father or bust. You understand what I'm trying to say? He wants a hundred percent of us and the only time there is ever an attribute that remotely sounds negative describing God, and it's not, but it sounds it, is when the Bible says He is a jealous God. What's He jealous for, saints? You. You. I heard one time a wise older pastor say, Eric, you need to learn. Jennifer spells love, T-I-M-E. I didn't get what he was saying at first. After some years of marriage, Jennifer's done a good job of teaching me that. There is a lot to be said for that in the way that God interprets your love as well. There really is. See, what we want to do is spend very little time in His Word, very little time in prayer, very little time even considering what He would and would not want us to do and why we're on the earth, but then proclaim our love to Him. And just like a good spouse knows when her husband is a liar, God knows when we're a liar. The problem is we don't know. So we find all of these scriptures that say things like, if you say you walk with Him and yet walk in darkness, you are a liar. We find scriptures like the one that got me saved. This is not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, I love you, honey, enters the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. We find these scriptures that make it very plain, like 1 John, that says, if you love Him, you will walk as He walked. You know who that's for? That's not so that God has a litmus test to measure you against. He already knows. It's so it's when we can identify that we are lying about it. How many men do you know that will tell you right straight away, my family is the most important thing to me? That's as American as apple pie, right? But when you, when you study their lives, what you see is really important to them is beer, football, and deer hunting. 
And I could have picked anything, but that seems to be an unholy trinity in our culture. But they say it. Do you believe that they believe it? Of course they do. They lie to themselves. Well, it's easy to see about them, but what do you do with Christians that lie to themselves regularly? Say, I love God. He knows my heart. The truth is, most of you love Jesus very much. I love Him very much. But these kinds of words are given to us so that we will love Him even more. So that we'll be more attentive to our walk. More attentive to our lifestyle. I found out that idolatry would be an easy, easy thing to fight against if it showed up as a stone statue. But what is hard is that it shows up as a passing interest. And it takes a stronger and stronger hold in our lives until golf becomes more important and how you hit a golf ball can control your whole day instead of your walk in reading and loving the Lord controlling your day. You ever met somebody that was mad and you asked why and because one of their hobbies didn't go well that day? That gives you a good clue. That's a good idolatry uh, meter. All right, so in the 10th chapter of Second Chronicles, you see a title that says, Israel rebels against Rehoboam. What has happened is after Solomon's golden age in Israel of prosperity, peace, no warfare, Solomon had superior wisdom, superior military might, and because of his daddy, superior favor from God. Well, that time period has passed, and there's a schism in Israel. And God seems to work through this, but it's a civil war. And in the northern kingdom, we have a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, becomes the embodiment of a guy who goes down the wrong path. His name is as bad as Cain's, or to us, Judas. In the southern kingdom at the same time, there's a man named Rehoboam. He's of the right family lineage, but he doesn't seem to do very well. In the 11th, 10th chapter, he ends up fighting with Israel. In the 11th chapter, he comes home and he builds fortifications. In the 12th chapter, something unique happens, and I just want to glaze over this as we go where we need to go. God had instructed David to build shields of gold. Now, you guys are Bible scholars, almost every one of you. What does gold represent in the Bible? Divinity. They had protection that was divine in origin. But because of his unfaithfulness, he exchanged his shield of gold for a shield of bronze. Because Shishak, an Egyptian king, marched on Israel and carried off all of the gold shields. And so from time to time, Rehoboam would pull out a bronze shield. It looks like gold. looks like a shield. But he lost the favor of God because he would not remain in God's word. He would not do what God said to do. But that's not why I had you turn here. He's succeeded by someone named Abijah. All you really know about Abijah is Abijah is more than willing to fight the people that God wants to fight. And he does good. And he does so good that he births a son named Asa and Asa's who we're going to read about. In the 14th chapter and first verse, and Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. And in his days, the country was at peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars in the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. 
That's like somebody experiencing revival in their life. And they're removing everything except what God wants in their life. This is why so many times when people get saved, they throw away certain clothes. They throw away certain sets of CDs. They might even go find a stash of movies that don't belong in their house anymore. They may do things like stop certain outward activities. For some people, it's smoking. For others, it's drinking. For others, it's whatever it is. And I'm not telling you to do any of that. I'm just telling you at a time in people's lives, you start to eliminate things that are distractions for you. Ace is doing that. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey His laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and every kingdom was at peace under Him. He built up the fortified cities in Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with Him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them. Kind of like God does his vineyard. With towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Asa had an army of 300 thousand men from Judah, equipped with large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin armed with small shields and bows. All these men were brave fighting men. Zerah the Cushite marched out against them, and a vast army and 300,000 chariots came as far as Marshes. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephatha <laughs> and near Marshes. Then Asa called to the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. What did Jesus say? If you remained in him and he remained in you, you could ask for anything in his name and it would be given for you. Asa has done what it takes to remain in God and God in him. So he asked, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to be given him. O Lord our God, do not let man prevail against you. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa in Judah. God moved on his behalf. Can anybody guess why? because of all the other things that he did to make sure his heart was wholly devoted. Pick up with me in 15.1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. Did you hear that? Maybe we should read that again, because I don't think that fits very well into our southern denominational theology. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Does that sound at all like John 15 to you? Remain in him and he will remain in you. If you do not remain in him, he cuts you off like a branch and throws you into the fire. For a long time Israel was without the true God. 
without a priest to teach them and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him, and He was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the land were in great turmoil. Talks about bringing up one nation and bringing down another. Asa hears these words. Asa has seen God deliver him in battle, and Asa has remained in God. Asa must be a pretty awesome guy then, right? Right? Asa's doing everything that a man should do. You see that 16th chapter? It says Asa's last years. You, hear, you see that? Asa's last years. Just above it, in the 18th verse, 17th verse, it says Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. All his life. But what about these last years? In the 36th year, first verse of the 16th chapter, of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you. Do you know of anywhere in the Bible where God says to make a treaty with Aram? It doesn't exist. In fact, God has already told Asa that he can go fight, whip this king in the north of Israel, and whip Aram and anybody else that faces them. And God's proven it by beating the Cushite, Zerah. And by beating everybody that Asa had ever stood against. And why did God beat them all? Because Asa remained in him and God remained in Asa. Both. Verse 4. Then Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ajan, Dan, Abel, Maim, and the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber of Basha had been using. With them he built up Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Haniah the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with a great number of chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, strengthening those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you'll be at war. All of his life, he had experienced success because he had relied 100% upon God. Now as he has gotten older and feels as if God owes something to him, he's begun to compromise the things that have made him great. And because of that, where God would have strengthened him, do you want to know how Asa finishes out his life? With the disease that's come on him from God. And his heart got harder and harder so that he would not ask even for God to heal him. So how is it that somebody then can be in love with God do godly things for years and years and years and then not finish the race well. 
We can argue about whether Asa was saved if you want to. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. The point is, he didn't finish stronger than he started. And there's a lesson in this for us. It's the same reason that Jesus says that he's divine. And that if you remain in him, he'll remain in you and that you'll bear much fruit. There is only one way for us to be a success in the kingdom. There is only one way for us to walk right with our God. It is a 100% buy-in, spiritual fervor all day, every day, for God and none other. Nothing less is accepted by Him. He's a jealous God and that's what He wants. And sometimes the struggles that you have, sometimes the difficulties in our own lives are nothing more than God allowing us to struggle like Asa's disease in his feet so that we will again call out to Him and say, Lord, You're the only thing that's ever been good to me. I promise this time I'll stay closer to You. Saints, we need to hear that word. We need to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Angie prophesied tonight. If you didn't think that was from God, you were wrong. I had the same word that she had. And I had it before she did, and she beat me to it. And praise God, that's how the Spirit moves in a body. And then He gave me a compliment to it. That's not because I think that you're all backslidden. I don't. It's not because I have a low opinion of your spiritual health. I don't. It's because I know what competes for your attention and how how high the stakes are. I'm not going to let my emotions, I'm not going to let the desires of my flesh, I'm not going to let pressures from you, finances, or family do anything to diminish my 100% buy-in to the King of Kings. I'm going to protect that part of my heart in my life at all costs. And I refuse to take the silver God's given me to buy security in this world. I found out something. When it's all at risk, every day, all of the time, God shows up in battle. And that's all I've ever wanted. Can you say amen to that? Eleven times in ten verses, he says, remain in me. The best way I know for you to remain in him is to swim in his word, to fellowship with his spirit, and never, ever, ever miss a church service. Period. There's not a sickness that could come on you that should cause you to miss a church service. And when you do have to, have church where you're at. Eric, that's awful hard. All I can tell you is for 15 years, it has worked for me. It has worked. And I can't tell you the number of times I was deathly ill until I got into His presence and it faded away. I'm not picking on you. You're here tonight. I'm not picking on anybody who's not here. I'm telling you, do whatever it takes. Remain in Him or bust. Can you say amen to that? Okay. Well, I'm two minutes over and I promised I wouldn't do that on a Wednesday. So we're going to stand and we're going to pray. We're going to put great big smiles on our faces because this is not a harsh word. It's a good word. If you remain in Him, what happens? You bear much fruit. You ever read the parable of the sower? 30, 60, and a hundredfold. Anybody in here ever read that? Did you strive then for the thirtyfold or did you want to be in the hundred? The way you get the hundred is just to remain in Him a hundred percent of the time. That's pretty easy to remember, huh? A hundredfold means I'm in Him a hundred percent of the time. Can you say amen? Okay. Last scripture. Go look up Exodus 24-7. Okay? Exodus 24-7. What scripture are you going to look up? 
Exodus 24-7, and you're going to do it 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Okay? Bow your head.